You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 2 Mr. Augustus Darley and Mr. Joseph Peters Go Out Fishing A long period of incessant rains had by no means improved the natural beauties of the sloshy, nor had it in any manner enhanced the advantages attending a residence on the banks of that river. The occupants of the houses by the waterside were in the habit of going to sleep at night with the firm conviction that the lower portion of their tenement was a comfortable kitchen, an awakening in the morning were apt to find it a miniature lake. Then again, the river had a knack of dropping in at odd times, in a friendly way, when least expected, when Mrs. Jones was cooking the Sunday's dinner, or while Mrs. Brown was gone to the market, and, as its manner of entering an apartment was, after the fashion of a ghost in a melodrama, to rise through the floor, the surprise occasioned by its appearance was not unalloyed by vexation. It would intrude, an uninvited guest at a social tea party, and suddenly isolate every visitor on his or her chair as on an island. There was not a mouse or a black beetle in any of the kitchens by the sloshy, whose life was worth the holding. Such an enemy was the swelling water to all domestic peace or comfort. It is true that to some fresh and adventurous spirits, the rising of the river afforded a kind of eccentric gratification. It gave a smack of the flavor of Venice, and to an imaginative mind, every coal barge that went by became a gondola, and only wanted a cavalier, with a very short doublet, pointed shoes, and a guitar, to make it perfection. Indeed, Miss Jones, milliner and dressmaker, had been heard to say, that when she saw the water coming up to the parlor windows, she could hardly believe she was not really in the city of the winged horses, round the corner out of the square of St. Mark's, and three doors from the Bridge of Sighs. Miss Jones was well up in Venetian topography, as she was engaged in the perusal of a powerful work in penny numbers, detailing the adventures of a celebrated bravo of that city. To the ardent minds of the juvenile denizens of the waterside, the swollen river was a source of pure and unalloyed delight. To take a tour round one's own back kitchen in a washing tub, with a duster for a sail, is perhaps, at the age of six, a more perfect species of enjoyment than that afforded by any alpine glories or highland scenery through which we may wander in after years, when reason has taught us her cold lesson, that, however bright the sun may shine on one side of the mountain, the shadows are awaiting us on the other. There is a gentleman in a cutaway coat and a white hat, smoking a very short and black clay pipe as he loiters on the banks of the sloshy. I wonder what he thinks of the river. It is eight years since this gentleman was last in Slopperton, when he came as a witness in the trial of Richard Marwood, then he had a black eye and was out at elbows. 
Now his optics are surrounded with no dark shades which mar their natural color, clear, bright gray. Now, too, he is, to speak familiarly, in high feather. His cutaway coat of the newest fashion, for there is fashion even in cutaways, his plaid trousers, painfully tight at the knees, and admirably adapted to display the development of the calf, are still bright with the greens and blues of the MacDonald. His hat is not crushed or indented in above half a dozen directions, a sign that it is comparatively new, for the circle in which he moves considers bonneting a friendly demonstration, and to knock a man's hat off his head and into the gutter, rather a polite attention. Yes, during the last eight years the prospects of Mr. Augustus Darley, that is the name of the witness, have been decidedly looking up. Eight years ago he was a medical student, loose on wide London, eating bread and cheese and drinking bottled stout in dissecting rooms, and chalking up alarming scores at the caravansary round the corner of Goodge Street when the proprietor of the caravansary would chalk up. There were days which that stern man refused to mark with a white stone. Now he has a dispensary of his own, a marvelous place, which would be entirely devoted to scientific pursuits if dominoes and racing calendars did not in some degree predominate therein. This dispensary is in a populous neighborhood on the Surrey side of the water, and in the streets and squares round this establishment the name of Augustus Darley is synonymous with everything which is popular and pleasant. His very presence is said to be as good as physic. Now, as physic in the abstract, and apart from its curative qualities, is scarcely a very pleasant thing, this may be considered rather a doubtful compliment. But for all that, it was meant in perfect good faith, and what's more, it meant a great deal. When anybody felt ill, he sent for Gus Darley. He had never been called Mr. but once in his life, and then by a sheriff's officer, who, arresting him for the first time, wasn't on familiar terms. All Cursitor Street knew him as Gus, old fellow, and Darley, my boy, before long. If the patient was very bad, Gus told him a good story. If the case seemed a serious one, he sang a comic song. If the patient felt, in popular parlance, low, Darley would stop to supper. And if by that time the patient was not entirely restored, his medical adviser would send him a hapworth of Epsom salts or three farthings worth of rhubarb and magnesia, jocosely labeled the mixture. It was a comforting delusion, labored under by every patient of Gus Darley's, that the young surgeon prescribed for him a very mysterious and peculiar amalgamation of drugs, which, though certain death to any other man, was the only preparation in the whole pharmacy that could possibly keep him alive. There is a current saying in the neighborhood of the dispensary to the effect that Gus Darley's description of the Derby Day was the best Epsom salt ever invented for the cure of man's diseases, and he has been known to come home from the races at ten o'clock at night and assist at a sickbed, successfully, with a wet towel round his head and a painful conviction that he was prescribing for two patients at once. But all this time he is strolling by the swollen sloshy with his pipe in his mouth and a contemplative face, which ever and anon looks earnestly up the river, Presently, he stops by a boat-builder's yard and speaks to a man at work. 
Well, he says, is that boat finished yet? Yes, sir, says the man. Quite finished. An uncommon well, she looks too. You might eat your dinner off her. The paint's dry as a bone. How about the false bottom I spoke of, he asks. Oh, that's all right, sir. Two feet and a half deep and six feet and a half long. I'll tell you what, sir, no offense, but you must catch a precious sight more eels than I think you will catch if you mean to fill the bottom of that here punt. As the man speaks, he points to where the boat lies, high and dry in the builder's yard. A great awkward flat-bottomed punt, big enough to hold half a dozen people. Gus strolls up to look at him. The man follows him. He lifts up the bottom of the boat with a great thick loop of rope. It is made like a trap door, two feet and a half above the keel. Why, said Gus, a man could lie down in the keel of the boat with that main deck over him. To be sure he could, sir, and a pretty long one, too. Though I don't say much for its being a comfortable berth. He might feel himself rather cramped if he was of a restless disposition. Gus laughed and said, "'You're right. He might, certainly, poor fellow. "'Come now, you're rather a tall chap. "'I should like to see if you could lie down there comfortably for a minute or so. "'We'll talk about some beer when you come out.' "'The man looked at Mr. Darley with rather a puzzled glance. "'He had heard the legend of the mistletoe bow. "'He'd helped to build the boat, "'but for all that there might be a hidden spring somewhere about it, "'and Gus's request might conceal some sinister intent. "'But no one who had once looked our medical friend in the face "'ever doubted him. "'So the man laughed and said, "'Well, you're a rummin, whoever the other is. "'People were rarely very deferential "'in their manner for dressing Gus Darley. "'Howsever, here's to oblige you.' "'And the man got into the boat, "'and lying down, suffered Gus to lower the false bottom of it over him.' "'How do you feel?' asked Gus. "'Can you breathe? Have you plenty of air?' "'All right, sir,' says the man through a hole in the plank. "'It's quite an extensive berth once you've settled yourself. "'Only it ain't much calculated for active exercise.' "'Do you think you could stand it for half an hour?' Gus inquires. "'Lord, bless you, sir, for half a dozen hours if I was paid according. "'Should you think half a crown enough for twenty minutes?' "'Well, I don't know, sir. Suppose you made it three shillings.' "'Very good,' said Gus. Three shillings it shall be. "'It's now half-past twelve. he looks at his watch as he speaks. "'I'll sit here and smoke a pipe. "'And if you lie quiet till ten minutes to one, you'll have earned the three bob.' "'Gus steps into the boat and seats himself at the prow. "'The man's head lies at the stern. "'Can you see me?' Gus inquires. "'Yes, sir.' "'when I squint. "'Very well, then. "'You can see I don't make a bolt of it. "'Make your mind easy. "'There's five minutes gone already.' "'Gus finishes his pipe, "'looks at his watch again, a quarter to one. "'He whistles a scene from an opera "'and then jumps out of the boat "'and pulls up the false bottom. "'All right,' he says. "'Time's up.' "'The man gets out and stretches his legs and arms "'as if to convince himself "'that those members are unimpaired.' "'Well, was it pretty comfortable?' Gus asks. "'Lord love you, sir. Regular jolly, with the exception of being rather warm and making a cove precious dry.' 
Gus gives the man we're with to assuage this drought and says, "'You may shove the boat down to the water, then. "'My friend will be here in a minute with the tackle, "'and we can then see about making a start.' "'The boat is launched, "'and the man amuses himself with rowing a few yards up the river "'while Gus waits for his friend. "'In about ten minutes his friend arrives "'in the person of Mr. Joseph Peters of the police force "'with a couple of eel spears over his shoulder,' which give him somewhat the appearance of a dry land Neptune, and a good-sized carpet-bag which he carries in his hand. Gus and he exchange a few remarks in the silent alphabet, in which Gus is almost as great an adept as the dumb detective, and they step into the punt. The boat-builder's man is sent for a gallon of beer in a stone bottle, a half-quartern loaf, and a piece of cheese. Darley and Peters each take an oar, and they pull away from the bank and strike out into the middle of the river. Chapter 3 The Emperor Bids Adieu to Elba On this same day, but at a later hour in the afternoon, Richard Marwood, better known as the Emperor Napoleon, joined the inmates of the county asylum in their daily exercise in the grounds allotted for that purpose. These grounds consisted of grass plots, adorned with here and there a bed in which some dismal shrubs, or a few sickly chrysanthemums, held up their gloomy heads, beaten and shattered by the recent heavy rains. These grass plots were surrounded by stiff straight gravel walks, and the whole was shut in by a high wall surmounted by a chevaux de frise. The irons composing this adornment had been added of late years, for in spite of the comforts and attractions of the establishment, some foolish inhabitants thereof, languishing for gayer and more dazzling scenes, had been known to attempt, if not to effect, an escape from the numerous advantages of their home. I cannot venture to say whether or not the vegetable creation may have some mysterious sympathy with animated nature, but certainly no trees, shrubs, flowers, grasses, or weeds ever grew like the trees, shrubs, flowers, grass, and weeds in the grounds of the county lunatic asylum. From the gaunt elm, which stretched out two great rugged arms, as if in a wild imprecation, such as might come from the lips of some human victim of the worst form of insanity, to the frivolous chickweed in a corner of a gravel walk, which grew as if not a root or leaf or fiber, but had a different purpose to its fellow, and flew off at its own peculiar tangent, with an infantine and kittenish madness, such as might have afflicted a lovesick miss of seventeen, from the great melancholy mad laurel bushes that rocked themselves to and fro in the wind, with a restlessness known only to the insane, to the eccentric dandelions that reared their disordered heads from amidst the troubled and disheveled grass. Every green thing in that great place seemed more or less a victim to that terrible disease whose influence is of so subtle a nature that it infects the very stones of the dark walls which shut in shattered minds that once were strong and whole and fallen intellects that once were bright and lofty. But as a stranger to this place, looking for the first time at the groups of men and women lounging slowly up and down these gravel walks, perhaps what most startles you, perhaps even what most distresses you, is that these wretched people scarcely seem unhappy. O merciful and wondrous wise dispensation from him who fits the back to bear the burden, 
he so appoints it. The man whose doubts or fears or wild aspirings to the misty far away, all the world's wisdom could not yesterday appease, is today made happy by a scrap of paper or a shred of ribbon. We, who standing in the blessed light, look in upon this piteous mental darkness, are perhaps most unhappy, because we cannot tell how much or how little sorrow this death in life may shroud. They have passed away from us. Their language is not our language, nor their world our world. I think someone has asked a strange question. Who can tell whether their folly may not, perhaps, be better than our wisdom? He only, from whose mighty hand comes the music of every soul, can tell which is the discord and which the harmony. We look at them as we look at all else, through the darkened glass of earth's uncertainty. No, they do not seem unhappy. Queen Victoria is talking to Lady Jane Grey about today's dinner, and the reprehensible superabundance of fat in a leg of mutton served up. Chronology never disturbs these good people. Nobody thinks it any disgrace to be an anachronism. Lord Brougham will divide an unripe apple with Cicero, and William the Conqueror will walk arm-in-arm with Pius IX, without the least uneasiness on the score of probability. Today, however, Richard is the hero. He is surrounded immediately on his appearance by all the celebrities and a great many of the non-celebrities of the establishment. The emperor of the German Ocean and the Chelsea Waterworks, in particular, has so much to say to him that he does not know how to begin. And when he does begin, has to go back and begin again in a manner both affable and bewildering. "'Why did not Richard join them before?' he asks. "'They are so very pleasant. They are so very social.' Why, in goodness gracious name, he opens his eyes very wide as he utters the name of goodness gracious and looks back over his shoulder, rather as if he thinks he may have invoked some fiend. Why did not Richard join them? Richard tells him he was not allowed to do so. On this, the potentate looks intensely mysterious. He is rather stout and wears a headdress of his own manufacture, a species of coronet constructed of a newspaper and a blue-and-white bird's-eye pocket-handkerchief. He puts his hand to the furthest extent that he can push them into his trouser pockets, plants himself right before Richard on the gravel walk, and says with a wink of intense significance, "'Was it the con?' Richard says he thinks not. "'Not the con,' he mutters thoughtfully. "'You really are of the opinion that it was not the con.' "'I really am,' Richard replies." Then it lies between the last Duke of Devonshire, but sixteen, and Abdel Qadir. I do hope it wasn't Abdel Qadir. I had a better opinion of Abdel Qadir. I had indeed. Richard looks rather puzzled, but says nothing. There has evidently, continued his friend, been some malignant influence at work to prevent your appearing amongst us before this. You have been a member of this society for, let me see, three hundred and sixty-three years. "'Be kind enough to set me right if I make a misstatement. Three hundred and... "'Did I say seventy-twelve years? "'And you have never yet joined us. "'Now, there is something radically wrong here. "'To use the language of the ancients in their religious festivals, "'there is a screw loose. "'You ought to have joined us. "'You really ought. "'We are very social. "'We are positively buoyant. "'We have a ball every evening. "'Well, no, perhaps it is not every evening.' 
My ideas as to time, I am told, are vague. But I know it is either every ten years or every other week. I incline to thinking it must be every other week. On these occasions, we dance. Are you a votary of Turp, what you may call her, the lady who had so many unmarried sisters? Do you incline to the light fantastic? By way of illustration, the emperor of the waterworks executed a caper, which would have done honor to an elderly elephant taking his first lesson in the polka. There was one advantage in conversing with this gentleman. If his questions were sometimes of a rather difficult and puzzling nature, he never did anything so underbred as to wait for an answer. It now appeared for the first time to strike hint that perhaps the laws of exclusiveness had in some manner been violated by a person of his distinction having talked so familiarly to an entire stranger. He therefore suddenly skipped a pace or two backwards, leaving a track of small open graves in the damp gravel made by the impression of his feet, and said, in a tone of voice so dignified as to be almost freezing, "'Pray, to whom have I the honor to make these observations?' Richard regretted to say he had not a card about him, but added, "'You may have heard of the Emperor Napoleon.' "'Bonaparte? Oh, certainly. Very frequently. Very frequently. And you are that worthy person. Dear me, this is very sad. Not at your charming summer residence at Moscow, or your pleasant winter retreat on the field of Waterloo. This is really distressing, very.' His pity for Richard was so intense that he was moved to tears and picked a dandelion with which to wipe his eyes. "'My Chelsea property,' he said presently, "'is fluctuating, very. "'I find a tendency in householders "'to submit to having their water cut off "'rather than pay the rate. "'Our only plan is to empty every cistern "'half an hour before tea-time. "'Persevered in for a week or so, "'we find that course has a harassing effect, "'and they pay.' "'But all this is wearing for the nerves, very.' "'He shook his head solemnly, "'rubbed his eyes very hard with the dandelion, "'and then ate that exotic blossom. "'In a greenable tonic,' he said, "'known to be conducive to digestion. "'My German ocean I find more profitable "'on account of the sea-bathing.' "'Richard expressed himself very much interested "'in the commercial prospects of his distinguished friend, "'but at this moment they were interrupted "'by the approach of a lady "'who with a peculiar hop, skip, and jump "'entirely her own, "'came up to the emperor of the waterworks "'and took hold of his arm. "'She was a gushing thing of some forty-odd summers "'and wore a bonnet, "'the very purchase of which "'would have stamped her as of unsound intellect "'without need of any further proof whatever. "'To say that it was like a coal scuttle was nothing.' To say that it resembled a coal scuttle which had suffered from an aggravated attack of water on the brain and gone mad would be, perhaps, a little nearer the mark. Imagine such a bonnet adorned with a green veil, rather bigger than an ordinary tablecloth, and three quill pens tastefully inserted in the direction in which Parisian milliners are wont to place the plumage of foreign birds, and you may form some idea of the lady's headgear, her robes were short and scanty, but plentifully embellished with a species of trimming which to an ordinary mind suggested strips of calico, but which amongst the inmates passed current as lace. 
Below these robes appeared a pair of apple-green boots, boots of a pattern such as no shoemaker of sound mind ever in his wildest dreams could have originated. This lady was no other than the damsel who had suggested an elopement with Richard some eight years ago, and who claimed for her distinguished connections the Pope and the Muffin Man. "'Well,' she said to the Emperor of the Waterworks, with a voice and manner which would have been rather absurdly juvenile in a girl of fifteen, "'and where has its precious one been hiding since dinner? "'Was it the fat mutton which rendered the most brilliant of mankind unfit for general society? "'Or was it that it had a heart for falsehood framed? "'I hope it was the fat mutton.' "'It's precious one,' looked from the charmer at his side to Richard, "'with rather an apologetic shrug. "'The sex is weak,' he said, conqueror of Agincourt. "'I beg pardon, Waterloo. "'The sex is weak. "'It is a fact established alike by medical science and political economy. "'Poor thing. She loves me.' "'The lady, for the first time, became aware of the presence of Richard.' She dropped a very low curtsy, in the performance of which one of the green boots described a complete circle, and said, "'From Gloucestershire, sir.' "'The Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte,' said the proprietor of the German Ocean. "'My dear, you ought to know him.' "'The Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte,' she said very slowly, checking off the syllables on her fingers. "'And from Gloucestershire. How gratifying!' "'All our great men come from Gloucestershire. "'It is a well-known fact, from Gloucestershire. "'Muffins were invented in Gloucestershire by Alfred the Great. "'Did you know our dear Alfred? "'You are perhaps too young. "'A great loss, my dear sir, a great loss. "'Conglomerated essence of toothache on the cerebral nerves "'took him off in fourteen days, three weeks, and one month. "'We tried everything, from dandelions.' Her eyes wandered as if searching the grounds for information as to what they had tried, from dandelions to chevaux de frise. She stopped abruptly, staring Richard full in the face as if she expected him to say something. But as he said nothing, she became suddenly interested in the contemplation of the green boots, looking first at one and then at the other, as if revolving in her mind the probability of their wanting mending. Presently, she looked up and said with great solemnity, "'Do you know the Muffin Man?' Richard shook his head. "'He lives in Drury Lane,' she added, looking at him rather sternly, as much as to say, "'Come, no nonsense. You know him well enough.' "'No,' said Richard. "'I don't remember having met him.' "'There are seventy-nine of us who know the Muffin Man in this establishment, sir. Seventy-nine. And do you dare to stand there and tell me that you—' "'I assure you, madam, I have not the honour of his acquaintance. "'Not know the Muffin Man? "'You don't know the Muffin Man? "'Why, you contemptible, stuck-up jackanapes?' "'What the lady might have gone on to say, it would be difficult to guess. "'She was not celebrated for the refinement of her vocabulary when much provoked. "'But at this moment a great stout man, one of the keepers, came up and cried out, "'Hello, what is all this?' "'He says he doesn't know the Muffin Man,' exclaimed the lady, "'her veil flying in the wind like a pennant, her arms akimbo, "'and the apple-green boots planted in a defiant manner on the gravel walk. "'Oh, we know him well enough,' said the man with a wink at Richard, "'and very slack he bakes his muffins. 
having uttered which piece of information connected with the gentleman in question, the keeper strolled off, giving just one steady look straight into the eyes of the lively damsel, which seemed to have an instantaneous and most soothing effect upon her nerves. As all the lunatics allowed to disport themselves for an hour in the gardens of the establishment were considered to be, upon the whole, pretty safe, the keepers were not in the habit of taking much notice of them. Those officials would congregate in little groups here and there, talking among themselves, and apparently utterly regardless of the unhappy beings over whom it was their duty to watch. But let Queen Victoria or the Emperor Nero, Lady Jane Grey or Lord John Russell, suffer themselves to be led away by their respective hobbies or to ride those animals at too outrageous and dangerous a pace, and a strong hand would be laid upon the rider's shoulder, accompanied by a recommendation to go indoors, which was very seldom disregarded. As Richard was this afternoon permitted to mix with his fellow prisoners for the first time, the boy from Slopperton was ordered to keep an eye upon him, and a very sharp eye the boy kept, never for one moment allowing a look, word, or action of the prisoner to escape him. The keepers this afternoon were assembled near the portico, before which the gardens extended to the high outer wall. The ground between the portico and the wall was a little less than a quarter of a mile in length, and at the bottom was the grand entrance and the porter's lodge. The gardens surrounded the house on three sides, and on the left side the wall ran parallel with the river Sloshy. This river was now so much swollen by the late heavy rains that the waters washed the wall to the height of four feet, entirely covering the towing path, which lay ordinarily between the wall and the water side. Now, Richard and the Emperor of the Waterworks, accompanied by the gushing charmer in the green boots, being all three engaged in friendly, though rather erratic conversation, happened to stroll in the direction of the grounds on this side, and consequently out of sight of the keepers. The boy from Slopperton was, however, close upon their heels. This young gentleman had his hands in his pockets, and was loitering and lounging along with an air which seemed to say that neither man nor woman gave him any more delight than he had afforded the Danish prince of used-up memory. Perhaps it was in utter weariness of life that he was, as if unconsciously, employed in whistling the melody of a song, supposed to relate to a passage in the life of a young lady of the name of Grey, Christian name, Alice, whose heart it was another's, and consequently, by pure logic, never could belong to the singer. Now, there may be something infectious in this melody, for no sooner had the boy from Slopperton whistled the first few bars than some person in the distance outside the walls of the asylum gardens took up the air and finished it. A trifling circumstance, this in itself, but it appeared to afford the boy considerable gratification, and he presently came suddenly upon Richard in the middle of a very interesting conversation, and whispered in his ear, or rather at his elbow, "'All right, General.' Now as Richard, the Emperor of the Waterworks, and the only daughter of the Pope, all talked at once, and all talked of entirely different subjects, their conversation might, perhaps, have been just a little distracting to a shorthand reporter. But as a conversation, it was really charming. Richard, still musing on the wild idea which was known in the asylum to have possessed his disordered brain ever since the day of his trial, was giving his companions 
an account of his escape from Elba. I was determined, he said, taking the emperor of the waterworks by the button, I was determined to make one desperate effort to return to my friends in France. Very credible, to be sure, said the damsel of the green boots. Your sentiments did you honor. But to escape from the island was an enterprise of considerable difficulty, continued Richard. Of course, said the damsel, considering the price of flour, flour rose a half penny in the bushel in the neighborhood of Drury Lane, which, of course, reduced the size of muffins. And had a depressing effect upon the water rates, interrupted the gentleman. Now, continued Richard, the island of Elba was surrounded by a high wall, a very convenient arrangement, of course facilitating the process of cutting off the water from the inhabitants, muttered the emperor of the German Ocean. The boy Slosh again expressed his feelings with reference to Alice Gray, and someone on the other side of the wall coincided with him. And, said Richard, on the top of this wall was a chevaux de frise. Dear me, exclaimed the emperor, quite a what you may call it, I mean an extraordinary coincidence. We too have a chevaux de thing a me for the purpose, I believe, of keeping out the cats. Cats are unpleasant, especially, he added, thoughtfully, especially the tom sex. I mean the sterner sex. To surmount this wall was my great difficulty. Naturally, naturally, said the damsel, a great undertaking, considering the fall in muffins, a dangerous undertaking. "'There was a boat waiting to receive me on the other side,' said Richard, "'glancing at the wall, which was about a hundred yards distant from him. "'Some person on the other side of the wall had got a good deal nearer by this time, "'and dear me how very much excited he was about Alice Gray. "'But the question,' Richard continued, "'was how to climb the wall, still looking up at the chevaux de frise. "'I should have tried muffins,' said the lady.' "'I should have cut off the water,' remarked the gentleman. "'I did neither,' said Richard. "'I tried a rope.' "'At this very moment, by some invisible agency, "'a thickly knotted rope was thrown across the chevaux de frise, "'and the end fell within about four feet of the ground. "'But her heart, it is another's, and it never can be mine.' "'The gentleman, who couldn't succeed in winning the affections of Miss Gray, "'was evidently close to the wall now.' In a much shorter time than the very greatest master in the art of stenography could possibly have reported the occurrence, Richard threw the emperor of the waterworks half a dozen yards from him with such violence as to cause that gentleman to trip up the heels of the only daughter of the Pope and fall in a heap upon that lady as on a feather bed, and then, with the activity of a cat or a sailor, clambered up the rope and disappeared over the chevaux de frise. The gentleman outside was now growing indifferent to the loss of Miss Gray, for he whistled the melody in a most triumphant manner, keeping time with the sharp splash of his oars in the water. It took the emperor and his female friend some little time to recover from the effects of the concussion they had experienced, each from each, and when they had done so, they stood for a few moments, looking at one another in mute amazement. "'The gentleman has left the establishment,' "'at last,' said the lady. "'And a bruise on my elbow,' muttered the gentleman, "'rubbing the locality in question. "'Such a very unpolite manner of leaving, too,' said the lady. "'His muffins, I mean his manners, "'have evidently been very much neglected. 
"'He must be a Chelsea householder,' said the Emperor. "'The householders of Chelsea are proverbial for bad manners. "'They are in the habit of slamming the door "'in the face of the tax-gatherer, "'with a view to injuring the tip of his nose. "'And I'm sure Lord Chesterfield "'never advised his son to do that. "'It may be as well here to state "'that the Emperor of the Waterworks "'had in early life been collector of the water-rate "'in the neighborhood of Chelsea.' but having unfortunately given his manly intellect to drinking, and being further troubled with a propensity for speculation, some people pronounce the word without the first letter, which involved the advantageous laying out of his sovereign's money for his own benefit, he had first lost his situation, and ultimately his senses. His lady friend had once kept a baker's shop in the vicinity of Drury Lane, and happening, in an evil hour, at the ripe age of forty, to place her affections on a young man of nineteen, the bent of whose genius was muffins, and being slighted by the youth in question, she had retired into the gin-bottle, and thence had been passed to the asylum of her native country. Perhaps the inquiring reader will ask what the juvenile guardian of Richard is doing all this time. He has been told to keep an eye upon him, and how has he kept his trust? He is standing very coolly, staring at the lady and gentleman before him, and is apparently much interested in their conversation. "'I shall certainly go,' said the Emperor of the Waterworks, after a pause, "'and inform the superintendent of this proceeding. The superintendent ought really to know of it.' Superintendent was in the asylum the polite name given the keepers. But just as the Emperor began to shamble off in the direction of the front of the house— the boy called Slosh flew past him and ran on before, and by the time the elderly gentleman reached the porch, the boy had told the astonished keepers the whole story of the escape. The keepers ran down to the gate, called to the porter to have it opened, and in a few minutes were in the road in front of it. They hurried thence to the riverside. There is not a sign of any human being on the swollen waters, except two men in a punt close to the opposite shore, "'who appeared to be eel-spearing. "'There's no boat nearer than that,' said one of the men. "'He never could have reached that in this time "'if he had been the best swimmer in England.' "'The men took it for granted "'that they had been informed of his escape "'the moment it occurred. "'He must have jumped slap into the water,' said another. "'Perhaps he's about somewhere, "'contriving to keep his head under.' "'He couldn't do it,' said the first man who had spoken. "'It's my opinion the poor chap's drowned.' They will try these escapes, though no one ever succeeded yet. There was a boat moored at the angle of the asylum wall, and one of the men sprang into it. Show me the place where he jumped over the wall, he called to the boy, who pointed out the spot at his direction. The man rode up to it. Not a sign of him anywhere about here, he cried. Hadn't you better call to those men, asked his comrade. They must have seen him jump. The man in the boat nodded assent and rowed across the river to the two fishermen. "'Hello,' he said. "'Have you seen anyone get over that wall?' One of the men, who had just impaled a fine eel, looked up with a surprised expression and asked, "'Which wall?' "'Why, the asylum, yonder, straight before you.' "'The asylum? "'Now you don't mean to say that that's the asylum, "'and I've been taking it for a gentleman's mansion and grounds all the time,' said the angler." who was no other than Mr. Augustus Darley, taking his pipe out of his mouth. 
"'I wish you'd give a straight answer to my question,' said the man. "'Have you seen anyone jump over that wall? Yes or no?' "'Then no,' said Gus. "'If I had, I should have gone over and picked him up. "'Shouldn't I, stupid?' "'The other fisherman, Mr. Peters, here looked up, "'and laying down his eel spear, spelt out some words on his fingers. "'Stop a bit,' cried Gus to the man, who was rowing off. "'My friend here says he heard a splash in the water ten minutes ago "'and thought it was some rubbish shot over the wall. "'Then he did jump, poor chap. "'I'm afraid he must be drowned.' drowned? Yes, don't I tell you one of the lunatics has been trying to escape over that wall and must have fallen into the river? Why didn't you say so before then, said Gus? What's to be done? Where are there any drags? Why, half a mile off, worse luck, at a public house down the river, the jolly lifeboat. Then I'll tell you what, said Gus, my friend and I will row down and fetch the drags, while you chaps keep a lookout about here. "'You're very good, sir,' said the man. "'Dragging the river is about all we can do now, "'for it strikes me we've seen the last of the Emperor Napoleon. "'My eyes, won't there be a row about it with the board?' "'Here we go,' says Gus. "'Keep a good heart. He may turn up yet.' "'With which encouraging remarks, Darley and Peters "'struck off at a rate which promised the speedy arrival of the drags.' "'Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios "'of North Carolina Public Radio,' WUNC.